This program deals with themes of an adult nature and is intended for a mature audience. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. We must guard against the military-industrial complex. Exopolitics, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events. From somewhere in the desert, between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Fairy Tales. Because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! The power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. Soldiers, don't fight for slavery, fight for liberty! The only thing we have to fear is fear itself! Sooner or later, though. You always have to wake up. Be skeptical, but don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to a New Year's Eve edition of Veritas, alternative media for discerning minds. I'm your host, Bell Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, make yourself at home. I want to wish everyone around the world the best New Year yet. And to all our members, we made it all the way to the end of the year, and I hope you can continue keeping Veritas alive for many more years to come. Thank you for your loyalty and support. And after you listen to this New Year's Eve edition of Veritas, I guarantee it, you will leave with one question. Mel, what in the world took you so long to have Graham Hancock on? That's right, Graham Hancock joins us for the last show of the year. What a fantastic guest he is. So get ready for another mind-bending show. Graham Hancock will be with us shortly. To listen to tonight's full show with Graham Hancock, all our shows, 111 of them, become a member. Simply go to our website, veritasshow.com, and click on subscribe. You will also receive access to Veritas TV and the Manticore Forum. Why wait? Start the year on the right track. 
and I want to thank everyone who sent questions for the Insight Veritas show. I have received a lot of feedback, so we may do it again next year. And Karen from Wisconsin, don't forget to get in touch with me so we can ship your 8GB metal case USB drive with Season 2 in a few weeks when we receive the new shipment. Karen was the winner of the Inside Veritas show raffle. And after the Inside Veritas show was done, there were a few stories left untold. You may remember how one of my favorite quotes is, The greatest pleasure in life is doing what people say you cannot do. I'll just share this with you to put things in perspective and also so you can start the year knowing that you can accomplish anything. I could give you many examples, but I'll just give you a few. Growing up, and even as a young adult, I was always called a dreamer. Persistence is a quality I hold dearly, and it's an important part of making your dreams a reality. I remember when I wanted to become self-employed. So many of my peers in the corporate world thought I was crazy. Was I really crazy? Or did they simply not want to face the fact that someone else could become self-employed? Many of my peers placed bets on me the moment I left, saying that it would only take a few weeks or months before I came back begging for my job. Well, I never looked back. But the story that prompted me to bring this subject up was something that occurred to me while I was a junior in high school in the 80s. It was career day. It was a day in which you would go and meet with the guidance counselor to talk about the career you were choosing for the future. When it was my turn, I entered the guidance counselor's office, sat down, and she said, okay, Mel, so what career will you be choosing in the future? My response, I want to become a pilot. The guidance counselor stared at her notes and started laughing uncontrollably. Then she looked at me and said, sorry, but with your math grades, I think you should choose a different career. Pilot? It's not going to happen. That must have been one of the most disappointing chapters of my youth. My guidance counselor, who is supposed to guide me and perhaps should have said, here are the steps you need to take in order for you to become a pilot. Instead, she attempted to shatter my dream. I looked at her. I did not choose anything else. I stood up, stared at her, and thought, one day I will prove you wrong. And I closed the door. Although I did not become a pilot as a profession, that thought never left my mind. In 1995, I received my pilot's license, and the first thing I did was, you probably guessed it, I made a copy and wrote a very long letter to the guidance counselor, who was coincidentally retiring that year. In summary, I told her, don't ever tell anyone that they cannot be what they want to be. Your job is to guide them. My math improved significantly in college, and I graduated in finance and accounting. And this private pilot's license is proof that what you did over a decade ago was wrong. Needless to say, I never heard back from her, but I know she received the letter. I heard from other students who suffered the same from her advisement. Some of them took her advice to heart, not me. And I'm sure many of you listening must have had the same equivalent of my guidance counselor. In a way, I'm glad this happened, for it was what motivated me to always want to prove others wrong. Don't listen to negativity. Believe in yourself. If you can dream it, you can achieve it. I came to the conclusion that those who tell you you cannot do something 
use it as a defense mechanism, psychologically, because they don't want you to excel and leave them behind. Don't wait for the beginning of the year to work on your dreams. Make every day of the year be January 1st. Just focus on a small goal every morning toward the big goal and simply say, I know I can do it. And believe me, you can. And the cold weather is here in the desert. I saw our blue and very clear skies on the 24th and 25th of December. I thought, mm, the powers that be celebrate Christmas like many. On the 26th, they were back in business with the camp trails. Ever since, the weather has turned into a black cloud covering almost the entire state of Arizona. Today, it is snowing. When you see cacti full of snow and weather in the 20s, it seems contradicting for the desert when temperatures are about 120 in the summer. I know many of you would think that 20s is tropical weather in comparison to what you're experiencing in your neck of the woods. Where's Al Gore when the UK is experiencing their coldest weather in 300 years? With that, let me take the opportunity to remind you that you can purchase MMS from us, whether you are in the United States or abroad. And if you need health supplements, our source guarantees their quality with a 30-day money-back guarantee. And you can buy as many products as you need and only pay $5.95 for shipping. They have thousands of the best products. Check them out. And we have a few metal case USB drives with Season 1. And in a few weeks, we'll start taking orders for Season 2. Go to the Veritas store and look at everything we have to offer. Oh, and one last thing before we get to tonight's interview. Many of you for months have been asking for an RSS feed for iTunes users. You see, the majority of our listeners have iPods. I know many of you listen from your computer or have different players, like the Zune, etc. For that reason, if you are a Veritas member, you can now visit the member section and click on the iTunes link. In the past, you had to take the link and follow a number of steps that were difficult for the technically challenged. But now, it is so easy. We have it in a way that all you need to do is click on the iTunes link. It will open your iTunes application and it will subscribe for you. What does that mean? You can now download the most recent show every Friday, both segments, whenever a new show airs without having to go anywhere. Of course, you should always visit the website and the guest page if you want to know more about what they offer. But now you simply download the most recent show automatically this way to your iPod. You can also do this with the RSS feed and any other audio application. I'm spending some time discussing this because those of you who subscribe to other shows will really enjoy this new amenity. Now members can also do the same with the iTunes link, but you'll only be able to download segment one and only a week after the show airs. How do you get the latest show in its entirety? Subscribe to Veritas. And while we were troubleshooting some issues, some of you who use the Safari browser asked me to download it. As I've said before, I don't enjoy Internet Explorer. I've been using Firefox for years. I didn't think anything else could beat it. Well, since I'm not an Apple guy yet, I decided to give Safari a chance. I loved it. And just when I thought there was nothing better and faster, another member told me about a problem with Google Chrome. For those who may not know, Chrome is Google's browser. Well, let me just say Google Chrome is now my default browser in all my computers. My, oh my, 
talk about a lightning fast and simple browser. Well, I tried and troubleshooted them all, and our system seems to be working with all of them, except Safari and the Flash Player. So if you haven't tried Google Chrome, give it a try. Just know that you may not go back to your current browser. And if you want to get in touch with me, click on the contact button of our website and join me on Facebook. And now, get ready for a preeminent researcher and investigator with an uncompromising vision into our real history and the powers behind the secrecy that keep humanity blind to its true potential. You won't hear an armchair investigator. Instead, you will experience someone who boldly lived the spirit of his passion, whether diving in the seas in search of ruins or climbing through jungles in the Amazon. If we could see the world through someone's eyes, tonight's special guest will be a prime candidate. If you want to believe the history learned, stop this audio now. If you want to know the findings of a real truth seeker, don't go anywhere. Graham Hancock is coming up next. This is Mel Fabregas, and you are listening to Veritas. This is John Lamb Lash, and you're listening to The Veritas Show. Graham Hancock is the author of the major international bestsellers The Sign and the Seal, Fingerprints of the Gods, Heaven's Mirror, and many other highly regarded books. His books have sold more than 5 million copies worldwide and have been translated into 27 languages. He's an author, lecturer, explorer, and journalist, and has appeared on hundreds of radio and numerous television shows, reaching millions with his work. His latest and very fascinating book is called Entangled, a novel that involves the story of two strong women, time travel, and the battle between good and evil. Graham graduated from Durham University with first-class honors in sociology. He then went on to pursue a career with quality journalism, writing for many of Britain's leading newspapers. He is a preeminent researcher and investigator with an uncompromising vision into our real history and the powers behind the secrecy that keep humanity blind to its true potential. Graham is frank, open, and a dynamic conversationalist. While he is erudite and highly educated, he is not an armchair investigator. Instead, he has boldly lived the spirit of his passion, whether diving in the seas in search of ruins or climbing through jungles in the Amazon. In his new book, he follows in the footsteps of the late Terence McKenna, a brilliant writer and shaman, investigating the nature of consciousness and pushing the boundaries of what is known and accepted in search of the true nature of what it means to be human. His website is GrahamHancock.com. And directly from London, England, I'm honored to present for the first time on Veritas best-selling author, Graham Hancock. Hello, Mr. Hancock, and thank you for being with us. How are you? Hi, I'm fine, thanks, and it's a pleasure to be with you. 
It's my pleasure. May I call you Graham? Yes, please do. And Graham, for months I've had so many requests for from people asking me to interview you. And, and no, you have been on a tour promoting your latest book, Entangle. And that's why we have been uh, able, we haven't been able to interview before. Yeah, I've been this on show, the road. <laughs> yes. And this show is very significant, Graham, because it is the last show of the year, airing tonight, the last day of the year, December 31st, 2010. What a way to end our second season. But before we start, I suspect most of our worldwide audience knows who you are. But for those who may not be familiar with you and, and your work, give us some background of yourself and how did you get into researching all these fascinating topics? Well, um, <laughs> I'm, you know, I just recently celebrated my uh, 60th uh, birthday. So I'm, birthday. In, I'm in the process of becoming a, a senior citizen. <laughs> and uh, uh, when I look back on, uh, on, on my life, um, I would say that... Uh, I always had a passion for investigation and for writing. And in my early years, uh, as uh, after leaving university, uh, I went into mainstream uh, journalism. Uh, I was very interested in uh, development issues, uh, the issues of uh, foreign aid. Uh, and I wrote actually a big book about foreign aid, which was published in the 1980s. That book was called Lords of Poverty. It was a criticism yes. of the lifestyles and attitudes of those who run the global aid business. In that period of my life, I was, I was totally focused on current affairs. But one thing in common with what I was to do later was that I was very much an outsider. Uh, I never felt myself to be part of the establishment, but rather somebody who would uh, criticize the establishment and seek to bring uh, a fresh and different uh, perspective uh, on ideas that are current in, in our society. Uh, I was the East Africa correspondent for The Economist uh, magazine, a very mainstream sure. um, uh, business and, and economics uh, magazine. Uh, I traveled widely around the uh, East African region. I reported on wars, on famines, uh, on economic issues, on development issues. Uh, but while this was going on, uh, in uh, Ethiopia, uh, in the Horn of Africa, which I visited frequently as uh, part of my work for The Economist, I came across uh, an incredible story, which, which is that uh, Ethiopia claims to be the last resting place of the lost Ark of the Covenant, the most precious relic of the Old, uh, Old Testament times. And in very dramatic circumstances in, in 1983, up in the highlands of Ethiopia, I found myself talking to an elderly monk outside of a simple chapel uh, in the grounds of an ancient cathedral in the city of Aksum. And he told me that in that chapel they had the Ark of the Covenant. <laughs> Seemed to be an outrageous claim. Yes. Uh, but at the same time, there was something um, powerful about this individual and about the setting in which I found him that, that tweaked my curiosity. And uh, I began to look further uh, into this mystery. And I continued looking into it for several years while still functioning as a, as a journalist. 
um, but building up uh, information and background on this story. And, and the first people I went and talked to were the academics, and I found them to be universally dismissive of the Ethiopian case. They, they simply felt certain that Ethiopia could not possess such a relic, uh, and that it must be some sort of fantasy that the Ethiopians had made up. But the more I looked at the situation on the ground, uh, the more I felt that the academics uh, could be wrong. Um, first of all, this was the only country in the world which had a living tradition uh, concerning the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, secondly, there was a very mysterious community of Ethiopian Jews, the so-called... The Falashas. The Falashas. Uh, they, the, the, they refer to themselves as the Beta Israel, the House of Israel, practicing a very ancient form of uh, Judaism. These, these people, they don't have rabbis like uh, modern Jews. They have priests. And they do perform sacrifice, which is forbidden to, to Jews uh, everywhere else in the world. Uh, it was as though um, a little bit of Old Testament Judaism had been frozen in amber in the highlands of Ethiopia. And clearly this was connected to Ethiopia's claim to possess the Ark of the Covenant. Well, to cut a long story short, I investigated the matter in great depth. Round about the late 1980s, it became clear to me that I had the basis for a book here. It was going to be very different from anything I'd written before. I was going to be moving away from current affairs, but I was still going to be coming out of left field, and I was still going to be investigating, investigating, in this case, a historical mystery. Uh, and that led to my, my, my first major book uh, on a historical mystery, which was called The Sign and the Seal, uh, A Quest for the Lost Ark of the Covenant. And it was this book uh, that really switched the whole direction of my life uh, and led me into the field uh, of investigating uh, ancient mysteries. And this is such an important book. And also the guardians or, or the protectors of the Ark of the Covenant, they seem to die rather frequently because they get some kind of radiation poisoning from that area. Did you look into this and did you ever look inside the uh, structure? <laughs> no, um, I did look into it in great depth. I, I, uh, I lived and breathed uh, this investigation for several years. Uh, it involved traveling extensively in Ethiopia during a time of war uh, and the final uh, journey across the Sudan and uh, through Eritrea and into Ethiopia at the height of the civil war uh, under risk of uh, being attacked from the air by Ethiopian government aircraft brought me finally again to the city of Aksum where I had been before in 1983 uh, and again into the presence of the guardian of the ark and it was a different guardian from the one I had met in 1983. Um, and in subsequent years, I went back several times, and every time the, the last guardian had died and a new one had replaced him. And when I talked to the guardians about this problem, they said, it's the ark that's killing us. They didn't know why it was killing us. But one of them uh, really um, uh, spoke to me in a, in a most um, impressive manner. Uh, I asked him, why, why, why is the Ark doing this to you? He said that the Ark was making him blind, that it was responsible for the cataracts uh, over his eyes. Uh, and he simply said to me, the Ark is a thing of fire. And Taking into account everything that I had learned, the, that, that I set out in my, in my book, The Sign and the Seal, uh, it seemed to me that the, once we add all the evidence and the information together, 
the most likely explanation is that the Ethiopians do indeed have the Ark of the Covenant uh, in that chapel uh, in the city of Aksum. Now, you asked me, did I ever get inside the chapel? Yes. Did I ever look into the Ark? No. Absolutely not. And nobody has ever done so. Not even the former, former emperors of Ethiopia uh, were allowed to see the Ark of the Covenant. And in this sense, Ethiopia maintains the sacredness and the supreme power of the Ark of the Covenant in exactly the way that it was maintained in the Old Testament of the Bible, because then, too, the Ark was not put on public display. Whenever it was carried out, it was wrapped in cloths. Uh, it could not be seen by, by ordinary people. There was a special caste of priests, the Levites, who were responsible for the Ark of the Covenant in Old Testament times, and we have a very similar situation in Ethiopia today. It's quite impossible to enter that chapel. The whole of the city of Aksum is an armed camp uh, there are armed men uh, everywhere. The cathedral and the chapel are heavily protected. And besides, one would not wish to do such a, uh, a boorish act of vandalism as to try to break into the most sacred place uh, in the country of Ethiopia. One also has to have respect uh, for the culture and traditions of that land. Of course, but wouldn't it, well, I don't know if they want too much I don't want to use the word advertising, but just to confirm that this indeed is happening, because many people think of the Ark of the Covenant and they, they think of the Solomon Temple and how it was there and uh, it stayed there. It got lost. But in reality, it was probably moved to an island and then later to this area. But in 1896, an Italian army invaded Ethiopia and the Ethiopians uh, defeated them while carrying the Ark of the Covenant. Is that a true story? That's a true story, and I reported that uh, in The Sign and the Seal. I think I was one of the first people to report that uh, in the West. Um, but uh, it's, it's absolutely accounted for with eyewitness accounts and, and uh, traditions and memories in Ethiopia of what happened at the Battle of Adowa, which was, in fact, the single greatest defeat of a European army by an African army ever recorded in history. Uh, and the traditions are that the Ethiopians carried with them the Ark of the Covenant into battle and that it was directly responsible for the massacre uh, of the Italian forces that took place there. A very important battle, by the way, because it prevented Ethiopia from ever being uh, colonized. Um, it was never a, a, a country that was, was, was colonized. As to proving the Ethiopian case, frankly, the Ethiopians don't care what the outside world thinks. Uh, this, for them, is uh, a matter of faith. Uh, it's their most uh, sacred relic. It, con it connects them uh, directly uh, to the time of uh, Solomon uh, in the Old Testament. Um, they know that they've got it, and they really don't care what anybody else thinks, and they're not in the business of public relations or of trying to persuade people uh, that it is there. It's simply a fact for them. And the question is, if they were able to defeat the Italians because of something that maybe originated from the Ark, why wasn't the Ethiopian army affected by the same? Why wasn't what? Well, why weren't the, the Ethiopians affected by the same force that defeated the uh, the Italians. If, if, you if, study, if you study the traditions of the Ark of the Covenant in the Bible, you'll find that it was often used as a weapon of war. Right, uh, And that those who used it appear to have known what they were doing, uh, oh. appear to have known how to manage this force uh, or this power. Uh, for example, 
Um, many of us are familiar, of course, from the Bible with the story of uh, Jericho and how the walls of Jericho are knocked down. And what most of us tend to remember from the biblical story is the trumpets blowing, which lead to the walls of Jericho falling. But actually, if you study the story closely, you'll see that the Ark of the Covenant is carried around the walls of Jericho seven times, and then the walls come down. Uh, on another occasion, uh, the Ark of the Covenant is briefly captured from the Israelite forces by the Philistines. And uh, the Philistines make the mistake of putting the Ark of the Covenant on display. They don't know how to handle it. They don't know how to deal with it. They even open it. And uh, the whole population of the town of Ashdod uh, walks past it and looks at it. And then they all start to die. And the Bible tells us that they die uh, in a horrible way uh, with terrible um, uh, affliction and, and with cancerous tumors. Um, and uh, on another occasion, the ark is being carried up to, um, uh, to, to Jerusalem uh, by, uh, by King David. Um, it's being carried on a cart. Uh, it seems to be unstable, and somebody meaning well in the crowd reaches out to try to stabilize it, to touch it, and he's immediately struck dead by a bolt of fire. I mean, the Bible and the legends of the Jews are just filled with the most extraordinary accounts of the Ark as some kind of weapon, um, w to which is associated a certain uh, kind of knowledge uh, and a priestly caste who are responsible for looking after this weapon. Uh, and uh, the Ethiopians certainly claim that they are the inheritors of that uh, of, of that knowledge. But it's uh, it's by no means uh, it's by no means uh, full foolproof. It seems to be uh, it seems to be dangerous to uh, to those who use it as well as those who it is used against. It's an unpredictable uh, weapon, and uh, uh, all the more dangerous for that. What do you suspect is inside of that wooden and golden box? Well. In the sign and the seal, um, following many different lines of research, and, and, and obviously I, I have to cut long stories very, very short here in our conversation, but all the information is in the, is in the book. Um, I, I, I suggested that, uh, that it might have been uh, a, a meteorite. There is, uh, there is a lot to support that idea of a stone fallen from heaven. Um, being uh, encased in this strange uh, box because the box is uh, it consists of layers. There's a there's an inner box of gold, then there's a layer of uh, a box of wood, and then out that outside that there's an outer box of gold. So it's like a sort of insulating uh, device. It really feels like um, like some kind of radiation shield that they've created here. And there are a number of of traditions and um, a, a, a great deal of information which suggests it might have been what they called a betil or a stone fallen from heaven. And were it a stone fallen from heaven, which we would call a meteorite, then we are free to speculate about its properties and its powers and what, uh, what really might have been the source of this energy. But of course, if you approach a, a religious person about this, they will tell you that the source of the energy of the Ark of the Covenant was God, God himself that the ark was uh, the sign and the seal of the presence of God on earth. Uh, in the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark, um, it's referred to as a radio for talking to God. And actually, that's quite a good line because Moses used the Ark of the Covenant as a communication device to talk to his deity, whoever this, whoever this deity is. 
so we should not separate it out from those um, those perhaps more supernatural elements as well. It's a mystery. Uh, it's it's really something that's not explained. I think that the Ark of the Covenant belongs to a category of objects, mysterious objects that have come down to us from the depths of history. Uh, and these uh, are sometimes referred to as out-of-place artifacts, uh, objects which seem to incorporate technology that is far ahead uh, of the period of time to which they are associated with. Uh, and there are many, there are many uh, examples of such objects, and the Ark of the Covenant is uh, one of them. And, and also, to understand the powers of the Ark of the Covenant clearly, we can't just take it in isolation. We have to recognize that it is one of a category of similar objects. Uh, you know, the story of Moses really begins in Egypt. Moses is re reared in the household of the Pharaoh. He is groomed to be a future Pharaoh of Egypt. Uh, and this, uh, this, this tells us that as, a, uh, as one who was to become a Pharaoh, that he would have been initiated into and highly trained uh, in the magical science uh, of ancient Egypt. And when we go into the ancient Egyptian records and study the reliefs on the temple walls, uh, we find that there are other objects very similar to the Ark of the Covenant, which the Egyptians uh, carry, which are also said to have devastating powers, uh, which sound to us like uh, radiation, and which inflict damage on their victims, which sound to us like uh, radiation poisoning. Um, so, you know, there's, a, there's just a whole range of, of mysterious background to this. And then, lo and behold, we have a country, an unexpected country, in the heart of Africa, uh, which it turns out has a very convincing claim uh, to possess this object. Whether scientists will ever be allowed to get their hands on it, I don't know. Personally, I don't think so. I don't think the Ethiopian church is ever going to allow that. Um, but uh, undoubtedly, we have a gigantic mystery here. And looking at your work, I, I, I look at, at you, you, you were a journalist, you worked for The Economist, then you started looking at the human rights in, in your book, Lords of, uh, Lords of Poverty. Po yeah. Poverty, and uh, then you start progressing into getting answers that are more thorough, you know, there are authors out there who research based on, on other books. Uh, mm. You have an insatiable appetite for answers. When you research, you actually live the experience. You, you've traveled around the world, yeah. climbed mountains, scuba dive to very exotic and dangerous locations. You don't cut any corners. Obviously, you are the epitome of a truth seeker, the real Indiana Jones. What drives you? Thank you for putting it that way. I, I feel very privileged to have led the life I have led. I think I've been blessed i've had i've had incredible opportunities in my life i've 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 seen so much of this extraordinary planet of ours i've been able to investigate the most ancient and the most mysterious uh, civilizations and to spend years of my life uh, doing that um, and i think when when we take on the role of interpreting the past uh, it isn't enough simply to go to the existing literature on the subject. Um, I, I feel it's really important to add something new to the subject as well. Um, and and re I suppose it comes from my background in investigative journalism, but I've always felt that I have to put myself into the story. I can't simply sit in an armchair and read books 
and recycle other people's material. It's very important to uh, be aware of the existing community of ideas. And a lot of what I do in my books is synthesizing uh, scholarship uh, material that has already been worked on. But a lot of what I do in my books is also original and new. Uh, and that involves travel and first-hand research and investigation uh, on the ground of the subject that I'm writing about. I simply will not write about a subject unless I can really roll my sleeves up and investigate it directly myself in situ, uh, not referring to books, but actually in the field. And, and that's been my policy all my working life, and it remains so. And that is exactly our type of researcher. And after Africa, you went to Egypt and were confronted by the wonderful architecture of the pyramids, which is why you wrote uh, With Fingerprint of the Gods. That architecture cannot be developed overnight. It requires a long tradition of skill, and that skill is long hidden from history. Even today's modern architecture cannot replicate it. What do you think happened to that knowledge, Graham? Well, you see, this was really in my life. One thing has led on to another. So I was researching the sign and the seal, uh, the story of the Ark of the Covenant in Ethiopia. The figure of Moses was extremely prominent. Moses uh, is deeply associated, as I mentioned, with Egypt. So it became necessary for me to travel to Egypt uh, and look initially at what I thought would be the background of Moses. But instead, I found myself looking at a whole new set of problems. Uh, most particularly the pyramids of Egypt, um, which I visited for the first time when I was researching uh, the sign and the seal. I first visited the pyramids in 1989. Um, and, and, and immediately I was, I was captivated by these stunning and, and perfect uh, structures, the three uh, great pyramids of, of Giza, the, the pyramids that are attributed by Egyptologists to the pharaohs Khufu, Khafre, and Menkaure uh, in the period roughly 2500 uh, BC. Uh, when I went and, 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 and saw these incredible structures for the first time, I was immediately curious. I wanted to know all about them. I wanted to learn everything I could about them and, and understand what was going on here. So my first, the first thing I did, as, as I always do, was to go to the, 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 the mainstream scholars and see what they've got to say. Um, and, and what I found with, uh, with Egyptology was really depressing. I found a, I, 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 I found a kind of solidified uh, group of scholars who have written a particular story about the past and who are going to stick to that story no matter what facts uh, may inconveniently get in their way. And their story about the pyramids uh, is very simple. They say that these pyramids were tombs. They were the tombs of these three pharaohs of the fourth dynasty, Khufu, Khafra, and Menkaura. And that's all they were. Um, and, and it doesn't seem to trouble Egyptologists that there's almost you know, no background, no architectural background to these pyramids, that they just seem to drop out of a black hole, out of nowhere, in all their perfection. Suddenly they stand there on the Giza Plateau. Now, really the Great Pyramid is uh, a stunning feat of uh, architecture. Uh, I've been lucky enough to have climbed the Great Pyramid five times. 
I've explored every known chamber and passageway uh, in the Great Pyramid, including many that are completely off limits to the to, to, to the general public. I have been over this monument uh, with a with a fine tooth comb. And uh, it's obvious to me and, and obvious to anybody who really studies it, what an incredible work of perfection it is, mind boggling perfection. You're looking at a monument that weighs six million tons. Hmm. It's got a footprint of more than 13 acres. It stands 481 feet high. It is perfectly aligned to true north, south, east, and west. When I say perfectly aligned, the error uh, in its targeting of true north is just three sixtieths of a single degree, just a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of error, which no modern architect could achieve. Uh, you can achieve that on a small monument, but to achieve it on a monument of six million tons with a 13-acre footprint, uh, which moreover is built over a low hill standing 30 feet tall, is an almost superhuman task. Then we find the gigantic blocks of stone uh, involved in the construction of the pyramid. Right up there in the, in the king's chamber, in the heart of the pyramid, you have blocks of stone that weigh 50 to 60 tons each, uh, spanning the roof uh, of, the, of, of the king's chamber. Uh, these blocks are incredibly precisely laid together as you, as you advance into the interior of the Great Pyramid and climb up the Grand Gallery. You're climbing at a slope of 26 degrees and you notice these huge blocks of stone forming the walls on either side of you. And they are so precisely fitted together that you couldn't even get a thin, tiny, thin sheet of paper in between the gaps between the blocks. There are no gaps. It's just incredibly precisely built and made. And yet we are to believe that this work of perfection, this gigantic work of perfection, is one of the first big buildings ever created by mankind. Because that's what the Egyptologists tell us. Yes. They, 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 they really keep it as simple as that. And, and somehow this is not supposed to be a problem. Well, for me, it was a huge problem. I couldn't understand it at all. And I'd learned to suspect academics from the dismissive way that they had uh, treated Ethiopia's claim to possess the Ark of the Covenant. I found academics weren't really investigating that. They were just dismissing it as a matter of prejudice. Uh, and the same, I think, is true with the academics who deal with Egypt, that they formed a fixed and firm impression of the story of Egypt, and they will not budge from it. And they hate mysteries. Personally, I love mysteries. Mysteries are, for, 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 for me, what makes life worth living. But Egyptologists don't want any mysteries. They want everything to be completely explained in the most mundane and boring and, to them, satisfactory manner possible. So I found myself very opposed uh, to this uh, academic uh, fraternity, which claims to speak for the past of mankind, uh, which claims to speak for ancient Egypt, perhaps the most important culture in the whole story of human history. It's not good enough for a small group of highly privileged academics with um, incestuous academic relationships with one another. It's not good enough for them to be the only people who speak for this culture. Uh, and I felt that another side of the story needed to be given, that, there, that, that, that it's just inconceivable that there is no background uh, to the pyramids. And so we need to listen to what the ancient Egyptians themselves said. And the ancient Egyptians said very clearly their culture was a legacy, a legacy of the gods. 
They traced everything back to the time of the gods who had come to Egypt thousands of years before the first historical pharaoh ever took the, 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 the throne. Uh, and whose knowledge and skills were incorporated in uh, all of the majestic constructions of ancient Egypt. So I thought, I thought it's important to listen to what the ancient Egyptians have to say. Let's see what's going on here. Let's see if, if, if ancient Egypt could actually be a legacy of an earlier culture. And it was that that led me into the investigation that eventually resulted in probably my best-known book, uh, Fingerprints of the Gods. Uh, which was published in 1995 uh, and which considers the possibility of a huge forgotten episode in human history that we've that we may have lost uh, a whole uh, civilization and very far back uh, at, at a time when mankind is supposed to have been only extremely primitive and 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 this uh, uh, this investigation uh, certainly, Egypt played an enormous part in it, but I also found myself uh, spending a lot of time in, in Central America uh, and in South America uh, as well, and, in, and uh, in, in a number of other parts of the world, putting together this picture uh, of, of a possible lost civilization. You know, I don't claim I'm right about this. I just claim that there's another point of view which the academics have neglected, and that if we wish to get to grips with our past, then it isn't good enough just to listen to what the academics have to say. We also have to be given another point of view so that we can make up our own minds. And that was the function I took upon myself, was to provide that alternative point of view. But to do so in a thoroughly coherent, logical, well-argued way. And that's the issue, Graham. For example, you have the academics in Egypt who dismiss a lot of... Uh you know, the research that you and other people may, may come up with, could it be because of their national pride? They don't want anybody to tell them that it was not the Egyptians. And, you know, 12,000 years ago, we were supposed to be hunters and gatherers, but there we have all these magnificent structures that we cannot even replicate with modern architecture. Mm -hmm. Yes, I mean, there's a whole, there's a whole range of different, uh, different problems. I mean, first of all, the national pride issue. Um, of, of course, modern, modern Egyptians, um, the, the, Arab, the Arab Egyptians are a different culture from the, from the Pharaonic Egyptians who created the, 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 the civilization of ancient Egypt thousands and thousands of years ago. Uh, so national pride is kind of irrelevant. In a, way, in a way, we're looking at a legacy of all mankind here, not a legacy of one particular nation. Right, um, and I think uh, I, I think it's a mistake to attach national pride actually to any ancient monument. Um, these monuments speak of the human endeavor as a whole, not of the endeavor of a particular nation or or culture. Um, secondly, uh, when it comes to the academic view of history, I've come to realize that history and archaeology are actually extremely political uh, disciplines, and that they they really are part of the they're part of the mind control system that operates in our society. Um, you know, there's, a, there's an ironic thing about democracies. We're supposed to be the, the greatest form of political freedom uh, known to mankind. But actually, uh, within democracies, perhaps as a system of just keeping the masses under control, there is a huge amount of, of mind control goes on. And one aspect of this is control of the past. If you control the past, then you, you, control, con the future. you control the future. You control yes. how people think about themselves in the present. 
And one of the prevailing myths of our time uh, is the is is the transference of the biological notion of evolution to the notion of societies, so that this has led to a to a natural tendency for for uh, academics to think that we must have been more primitive in the past, and that we've been gradually improving and getting better and better until today we find ourselves at the apex and the pinnacle. Uh, of human creation. And this creates a nice mood of aspiration and of steady forward progress, uh, which presumably is very sort of socially calming and keeps society quiet. How much more disturbing it would be um, if, we were to, if we were to accept that, uh, that, that whole civilizations have just come and gone and disappeared entirely from the, from, 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 from the planet, leaving, leaving almost no trace. How disturbing it would be to accept that there might have been gigantic uh, cataclysms that have brought human civilization low uh, in the past. Uh, how much more reassuring it is just to stick to this smooth model of continuous progress. And this is what Egyptology is in, invested in. And this is why Egyptologists can't bear the notion that there might have been a higher civilization in the past that lay behind the achievements that we attribute to the ancient Egyptians. It's a, it's a subversive idea, actually. Um, and, uh, and, and, and I think it explains the incredible hostility of uh, Egyptologists and other academics towards this idea. And shouldn't we consider that if previous uh, civilizations were wiped out before by fill in the blanks, it could have been man-made, could have been natural, shouldn't we be researching this to at least, if we can't prevent it, mitigate it or circumvent the same disaster? I, I feel it's really important to, to do that, and that's, and that's why I've devoted a good chunk of my working life to investigating precisely that, uh, precisely that problem. Um, you know, the famous story of Atlantis, um, comes down to us, the, the earliest surviving version to have come down to us is from the Greek philosopher Plato. Um, uh, and he speaks uh, of, a, of, of a, a great civilization which, w which was based upon an island but which had uh, a global outreach, a, an empire uh, all around the world which was, which was brought low by a gigantic global cataclysm. And in a single terrible day and a night, everything that that civilization had achieved was destroyed. And Plato said so severe was the destruction that mankind had to begin again like children uh, with no memory of what went before. Um, and, and really, when I read those words, it sent a, a, a tingle down my spine because I thought, you know, it just could be so. We could be a species with amnesia. Uh, we could have forgotten some of the most important things about ourselves. Uh, and one hint that this is the case is the astonishing number of myths and traditions from all around the world um, that speak of a former golden age, that speak of a great civilization that was destroyed, that, that speak of gigantic floods and earthquakes and volcanic eruptions uh, being responsible for this, uh, for, for, for this destruction. Um, and the academics tell us that all of these myths of flood and fire and destruction, that they're all just fantasies that were made up by primitive peoples at some time ago in the past. And I just think it's incredibly irresponsible 
uh, of the academic community to take that view. They could be right, but they also could be very, very wrong. And if they're very, very wrong, then there's important information for us here, which we need to take account of and which we're not taking account of right now. You know, it's interesting. You can go to southern India uh, and you will find a story pretty much exactly like the Atlantis myth uh, of a great civilization that was destroyed in horrendous floods at a time when India extended much further to the south than it does today. And interestingly, the Indian traditions put exactly the same date on this cataclysm as Plato does in the story of Atlantis. And when we translate that date into our modern calendar, it's about 11,500 years ago, 9,500 BC. And what's incredibly interesting about that date, which, which a number of ancient traditions around the world all cite, uh, is that it turns out to be smack bang in the middle of one of the worst uh, episodes of melting at the end of the last ice age. And, and uh, this is why I really began to, to focus on the mystery of the last ice age. If we have lost a whole civilization, a big civilization and an advanced civilization, then I can only see one time uh, in the last 50,000 years when that could have happened. And that was around 12,000 or 11,000 years ago at the end of the last ice age. The, 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 the ice age was the most extraordinary thing. It set in around 125,000 years ago. The ice sheets built up. They built up over northern Europe. They built up over North America. Uh, these ice sheets were two miles deep. Uh, they covered North America far, almost, almost down to the Mississippi. Uh, the whole of New York State was just covered in, in massive deposits of, of ice. The world looked very different from the way that it looks today. And because all that water that formed the ice caps on the continents had come out of the oceans, the, seas, the sea level was much lower then than it is today. In fact, at the, at the peak of the last ice age, sea level was 400 feet lower than it is today. 400 feet. 400 feet lower than it is today. Vastly changes the appearance of the world. There was, for example, no Red Sea at that time. There was no Arabian Gulf. Uh, India was joined to Sri Lanka. Australia was much, much bigger than it is today. Southeast Asia was a gigantic continent. The geologists call it uh, Sundaland, where now we find fragmented archipelagos of islands. Um, coastlines all around the world were vastly extended. All in all, we lost about 10 million square miles of land when the seas rose suddenly and cataclysmically at the end of the last ice age. And 10 million square miles of land is roughly equivalent to Europe and China added together. It's a really, it's a really gigantic amount of land that disappeared under the sea at that time. And the peak of it the peak of it was at exactly the time indicated in the Atlantis myth around 11,500 years ago. So uh, I, I feel that we have a very interesting uh, problem here. We have myths and traditions from all around the world of a lost civilization that speak of gigantic floods, earthquakes, volcanic activity. We know that all of this happened uh, at the end of the last ice age. And yet, so far as I'm aware, not a single mainstream scholar is looking into the possibility that I've looked into in my books, which is that at the end of the last ice age might have been the uh, event that wiped a whole civilization from our memory and turned us into a species with amnesia.
And can we speculate, Graham, that even today, most population live close to the coastline or close to, to rivers. If at the time that's what where people lived, that means that most perished and with them the knowledge, right? Exactly. This is, this is very clear. Uh, the world during the last ice age was large parts of it were completely uninhabitable. Of course, where the ice caps were two miles deep, nobody was living. Um, and, and, and even where the ice did not uh, extend, the climate of the Earth at that time was extremely arid. It was extremely dry um, and very, very cold. The places where human life could have best been sustained were along coastlines. And indeed, that's even true today, as you rightly say. If you count up the number of great cities of the modern world that are on or very close to coasts, you'll find it's a huge number. Um, and, and you have to ask yourself, what would happen to our civilization today if there were uh, effectively an overnight rise in sea level of 30 or 40 feet uh, that's a, 30 or 40 feet on its own would be enough to completely destroy our civilization. Every coastal city would be gone. And we know, you know, we pride ourselves on our technical achievements, on our uh, advanced technology. But we have a very poor record in dealing with disasters. Look at the, uh, look at the disaster in, uh, in Haiti. Look at the effects of Hurricane Katrina in the United yes. States. Look at the slow response to this. Look at how it almost brought the country to its knees. And that, then multiply that by 10,000 times. And, and you can imagine that our civilization might not be able to deal with such a shock. Uh, so I think that it was the case with the former civilization, that it lived mainly along coastlines, that it was a maritime, seagoing civilization, and it was utterly destroyed in the cataclysms that brought the last ice age to an end. Obviously, there was a knowledge, or there is a knowledge gap. What happened? We have those civilizations in Egypt, and perhaps we can talk about Atlantis too. And even your scuba diving in, in Japan, we can talk about that later. Yeah. But there's a knowledge gap. Do you think the knowledge gap was created because of this cataclysm? Well, um, when, when you say a knowledge gap, uh, my hypothesis is that there was um, an advanced civilization on our planet 12,000 years ago. Yes. Um, and that it was, um, it was pretty much destroyed uh, in the cataclysms at the end of the last ice age. Um, I do think that there were survivors. Um, and again, the myths and traditions of many countries attest to this, uh, and that these survivors settled in chosen lands, one of which was uh, Egypt. Um, there's a mysterious body of texts from ancient Egypt. You can find them today inscribed on the walls of the Temple of Horus at Edfu in Upper Egypt. They're called the Edfu building texts because they are inscribed on the walls of a temple. Uh, but those texts themselves tell us that they were copied from an earlier document, a book which the texts say had fallen from heaven. And uh, the, the, the text of this book was copied out, inscribed onto the walls of the Temple of Horus at Edfu. And these inscriptions speak uh, of what they call the homeland of the primeval ones, the land of the gods. In a very remote time, they refer to it as Zeptepi, it means the first time. And they say that a gigantic flood arose and the homeland of the gods was destroyed. 
and that then some of the gods came to Egypt and they settled in Egypt and they laid out the ground for the sites of all the future temples and pyramids that would be built in Egypt. Um, so we have a, you know, we have a very clear account there of, of survivors of a cataclysm with advanced knowledge coming to Egypt and immediately starting some kind of architectural program there. Um, so, yes, a civilization was destroyed in my view, but something of its knowledge was preserved uh, and, and deliberately and carefully preserved and passed down. Uh, I believe that what happened in Egypt was that uh, something like a, a monastery uh, was established by these survivors um, to preserve and protect their knowledge, that they recruited uh, new recruits from the local population of Egypt so that within two or three generations, um, everybody uh, who was a member of that, if you like, monastery containing the secrets of the lost civilization, they were now Egyptians. They were local people who'd been recruited and initiated into that system of knowledge. And I believe that that system of knowledge was preserved and was passed down for thousands of years and then was deployed to switch on the historical civilization of ancient Egypt around uh, about 5,000 years ago. And uh, it's that legacy of knowledge which accounts for the incredible construction feats of the Great Pyramids of Egypt. If you call it a legacy, and there's somebody or a group of people that may have it, isn't that a crime against humanity that we cannot use that technology even to replicate it today? I'm not sure if anybody has that technology today, and therefore it's not a crime. Um, I, think too much, I think too much time has passed. I think a desperate effort was made to preserve that knowledge uh, and to keep it uh, in a form where it could be used for human benefit um, again at the right time. And, uh, and, and I believe that that knowledge was used to switch on Egyptian civilization. That's why Egypt appears to come out of nowhere already fully formed, because the knowledge that lies behind ancient Egypt had been preserved and kept. But I think as, this, as the millennia passed and as we see uh, huge trends at work in human culture, uh, and particularly when we come down to the time of the Roman occupation of Egypt, uh, I think that the knowledge was increasingly filtered out and lost. Maybe a lot of it was preserved in the Library of Alexandria, but we know what happened to the Library of Alexandria. It was burnt to the ground, and, and all its precious scrolls and books were destroyed. Maybe more of it was preserved in the ancient Mayan lands in Central America. And again, we know what happened there when the Spanish arrived in Central America. They made a point of burning every single book that the Maya possessed. Yes. Except those that they could hide. So we seem to be a species that, you know, systematically sometimes enters a kind of madness where we literally destroy our past. Um, so I don't see any elite group who is still holding this secret knowledge from 12,000 years ago. I see it as having filtered down through many different streams into many different cultures around the world uh, and to have made its mark and to have had an impact, but largely over the passing of thousands and thousands of years uh, to have been lost. It's up to us now to reconstruct it. You know, in your new book, Entangle, you talk about the past, you know, you talk about the present. In the past, we lost, you know, through through cataclysm, we lost a lot of this knowledge, and what we could preserve, we preserved it in cave art, 
or stone tablets. If something like that were to happen today, where knowledge is preserving in computers, mm. how could we able to restart civilization with what we currently know? I think it's um, uh, it's a good question, and I, I think that uh, I think we have a real problem here. Um, I I am of the opinion that our civilization, modern twenty first century technological civilization is actually extremely fragile um, and could very easily be lost. Uh, you know, we've reached now such a level of specialization that really nobody knows what to do. We all depend on one another. Um, if, if there, there are hundreds and hundreds of different specialists in our society. People are very good at doing one thing, but they don't know how to do the other tasks because other people do that. Uh, and all of this depends on a huge body of cultural knowledge, which has been built up and preserved, and these days preserved largely in electronic form. Um, if we were to confront a gigantic uh, cataclysm, um, I'm not at all sure that our incredibly complex interdependent society would survive. I, 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 I think that the basic skills of survival are known by too few now um, because we are so dependent on technology. We, we, we've become, in a way, the slaves of technology. Yes. It's made us, it's given us a, a kind of mastery of the earth but we depend on it utterly. And if a disaster on a large enough scale were to occur where our technology were to be destroyed, then I think we would be lost. And I don't know how we would ever uh, recover it. We've, we've, got, we've moved too far away uh, from, our, from, from our roots. You know, it's interesting that um, even in ancient times, there was concern about writing stuff down. Um, there is a tradition comes down to us from... Uh, from from uh, from Egypt actually um, about the written word and about how and, and it debates the question of whether writing things down is a good thing or not because one of the strengths of many ancient cultures actually was the oral tradition yes. where where ideas and information are passed down by word of mouth uh, and where if you want clarification of an idea you can get it from the person who's passing it down to you as soon as you can sign everything to writing, well, yes, you have, a, you have a, a fairly reliable way of preserving the information. Um, but then you wipe out human memory. Human memory becomes not important anymore. There is no, there is no tradition being passed down from one generation to the next. Everything depends on the written word. And now in our culture, the written word is stored largely in electronic form. Uh, which is extremely fragile and subject, for example, to magnetic uh, incidents, uh, which, could, which we, it could literally wipe our data banks clean. So I think under an illusion of uh, a powerful, rich, technologically competent society, we actually have billions of individuals who actually don't know how to survive. Um, and, and the knowledge base on which our culture rests is preserved in a very fragile form which could easily be lost. In short, um, I don't think that we would survive a major global cataclysm. I think humanity could revert to the Stone Age within a generation. 
Absolutely. And what you mentioned is so true. In the olden age, you had the oratory where people would listen and pass that knowledge to others by engaging. Right now, we have become somewhat lazy. We know the knowledge is in the book, but we'll read it sometime. And it happens that way. And now we have so much electronics, and all we need is an electronic pulse bomb to explode on top of a major city Mm. to cause havoc uh, worldwide. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. I've also heard that, um, and and I'm not sure how true this is, that in modern uh, navies, both both merchant and and military navies, they're no longer teaching uh, astronomical navigation um, because everybody's relying on GPS. GPS. Oh. And, and a satellite satellite navigation. Now again, I mean this is a, this is a huge mistake uh, because because if nobody knows how to navigate by the stars and all the satellites go down, we'll all be lost. Nobody will know where they're going. You know, we'll have to literally reinvent the wheel. Um, so I think we're taking I think we're taking our dependence on technology so far uh, that it's actually become dangerous to us and uh, and, and and a threat to us. And uh, this is this is true at a very practical level, and I also think it's true at a psychological level uh, because it's not good enough to define ourselves simply as the product of our technology. Our technology is here to uh, to help us, but we should not be its slaves. In your research, and many other researchers talk about this, have you found in the history that you have researched that a lot of mythology has been mixed to it, and perhaps we need to start demythologizing a lot of that history that in true was history, not mythology? Yes, I, I've, uh, I've been of this opinion for, for a long time, that that, uh, that body of information called myth, yes. uh, in, in fact, is an, an enormous resource for us in helping us to understand who we are, where we came from, and, and what uh, problems uh, we face. Uh, you know, the word myth in the English language is, is almost equated with a falsehood or an yes, untruth. Yes, a lie. Uh, but I, I believe that there is enormous truth uh, in myth, uh, and that um, it's not simply, uh, it, it's not confined to the issue of myths of global cataclysm, uh, which we were talking about earlier. And it's true. I mean, there's at least 2,000 different myths of a global flood uh, all around the world. Um, and and uh, now that we know the facts about the end of the Ice Age, it's easy to see what those myths are talking about. They're talking about something that really happened and that had a dramatic and horrendous effect uh, upon humanity. But we can go further. Um, In my book, Fingerprints of the Gods, I drew attention to the work of two professors of the history of science. That was Professor Giorgio de Santillana of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and Professor Hertha von Deschend of Frankfurt University. Um, Back in the late 60s, they published a most extraordinary and very obscure book called Hamlet's Mill, um, which records the presence of surprisingly accurate scientific information in ancient myths. And this information is found in myths from all around the world, uh, in cultures that are not supposed to have been in contact with one another at all, according to the conventional uh, historical model. And furthermore, the information appears to have been deliberately inserted into these myths. And that's quite an eerie uh, prospect to consider, really. Um, And they're speaking specifically about a 
hard-to-observe astronomical phenomenon called the precession of the equinoxes. Um, and it's thought that the precession of the equinoxes is caused by a wobble on the axis of the Earth. Uh, obviously, the Earth is the viewing platform from which we observe the stars. And therefore, if the orientation of the Earth in space changes, then this will affect the orientation of the stars as we see them from the Earth. And it turns out that there's a very slow cyclical wobble of the axis of the Earth, which takes, uh, it is a cycle, and it takes 25,920 years to complete one, uh, one complete cycle of what is called the, the, the Great Year. Um, and this process unfolds at the rate of one degree uh, every 72 years. And again, I'm going to have to cut a long story very short, but it turns out that mythology from all around the world is encoded with information about the precession of the equinoxes and with these particular numbers that relate to the rate at which precession uh, unfolds. For some reason, some ancient uh, scientific people wanted, felt this information was so important that they deliberately incorporated it in amazing stories. And they knew that those stories would go on being told and retold down the generations. And it didn't matter whether the teller of the story was aware of the significance of the information it carried or not. All that mattered was that the story should be told true, and then the information would be carried down until eventually a time would be reached when it could be, uh, could be decoded. Um, so, uh, you know, I think mythology may actually uh, bear records and information of great value to us. And we need to understand why the ancients were so anxious for us to know uh, or to take account uh, of this ph phenomenon called, uh, called precession. And in fact, the two authors, um, the two historians of science, Giorgio de Santillana and uh, Hertha von Deschend, um, in, in a, a passage of, in their book that it's very easy to miss because it's a huge book, they did actually attribute this information to what they called some almost unbelievable ancestor civilization. And the question is, why is this knowledge being hidden or mixed? Well, I think it wasn't being hidden. It was being preserved. Uh, it was being preserved. It was as though there were an ancient people uh, who knew that mankind was going to have a fall, that we were going to fall away from knowledge, that we were going to become ignorant, that we were going to forget everything. Uh, and they tried to create a permanent bank of information of some knowledge that they felt was important by incorporating it in, in what we now call myths. Uh, so it was an attempt to preserve the knowledge rather than to hide it. But why would they call it a myth and not basically history preserved? Because this is, um, again, this is the arrogance uh, of, uh, of, of modern academics and modern historians and modern culture in general. Uh, our, our arrogance is that, uh, you know, we know best and uh, that the ancients were always supposed to be more primitive, more superstitious, um, l less rational than, than we are. So there's a, there's a tendency to despise the past uh, in a way and to regard all its products as uh, inferior to our own. And before we take our one and only intermission, Graham, I want you to tell us about Entangle, your new book, Entangle, the Eater of Souls. Tell me, first of all, the departure from nonfiction to fiction. I know that you worked very hard to make your books bulletproof, mm. because there's a lot of debunkers out there that are probably paid to debunk not only you, but a lot of our friends. Mm -hmm. And uh, I know it must be tedious to have to 
prove all the time that what you're saying has been researched down to a T. With Entangle, you had more freedom to do whatever you want, and now they can't come back to you because you can only say, it's fiction, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is why I, this is why I decided uh, after uh, after decades of of writing these very detailed uh, works of nonfiction, uh, it's why I decided that I would write a novel, um, that I would do something different. Because what I when I wrote Fingerprints of the Gods, which was published in 1995, um, I was very, I felt very free at that time, and I and I was writing from a place of freedom. And I was saying things exactly as I saw them, uh, and 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 I, I didn't really care uh, what sort of reaction I got from the uh, academics. And in some ways, um, uh, this was very naive of me, uh, because when you enter the factual arena, the arena uh, of nonfiction, and you take on a huge uh, establishment of academics who have got a particular view of history and you tell them that their view of history is wrong, uh, you can expect uh, to be uh, attacked in every possible way. And after I published Fingerprints of the Gods, my goodness, the attacks that came down on my head uh, over many, many years, they were just so many, so intense. You know, there is, a, <clears throat> there is an organization called, uh, the horrible name, called PSYCOP, the Committee for the Scientific Investigation of Claims of the Paranormal. They operate like a sort of fanatical church, yes. a church of science. Um, and they have uh, chapters and local groups in virtually every town and, and city in the developed world. Um, and the purpose of those local groups is to attack the name and reputation of anybody who opposes the established scientific model. Um, so I found myself under constant and continuous attack. And because of this, it began to affect my writing. Uh, I began to write more and more defensively, uh, began thinking, okay, how are the critics going to come at this particular piece of information? Yeah. I need to stop them. Uh, I, need to, I need to respond to the criticism almost before they put it. And the result was that my books, my nonfiction books, got bigger and bigger and bigger until I wrote uh, Underworld, uh, which, is, which followed six years of uh, scuba diving, looking for underwater ruins uh, all around the world. And that book, you know, runs to, I don't know, 850 pages. It's very heavy. It's got 1,400 footnotes. This was the apparatus that I had to put up uh, in order to, to deal with the attacks of academics uh, so that I would have, as you put it, a completely bulletproof uh, argument. But the problem with a very bulletproof argument is that it's really hard to read. And uh, that's why I decided uh, that uh, if I could do it, my next book would be fiction, uh, that I would continue to explore extraordinary ideas, uh, but that I would do so in context of a, a compelling, uh, fast-moving story, uh, and that I would not be required to uh, defend what I was saying uh, to any academic, because uh, after all, it's just fantasy. And I'm still reading it, and I find it more like two books, a combination of two books. One is the, the fantasy part combined with the amalgamation of all your work put together. But the, it's a very interesting story on how you came to write this book. And I want you to tell us once we come back from, sure. from our break, tell us once again how to get in touch with your work and all these great books. Yeah, well, my, the, way, the way to get in touch with my work is first and foremost through my website www.grahamhancock.com um, and their information on all my books including the, the, the latest book Entangled is there 
Folks, we are so privileged to have Graham Hancock here on the last day of the year. And hopefully on the second segment, he'll tell us how to look forward to the next year or two. We're going to be talking about 2012 and a lot of that research. So please don't go anywhere. This is Mel Fambergas. I'm here with Graham Hancock, and you're listening to The Veritas Show. Thank you very much for listening. We're going to talk more with Graham Hancock in our members section. If you're not a member, just head on over to our website, veritasshow.com, and click on the subscribe link to listen to the rest of the show. As a member, have you subscribed to the iTunes link? Let iTunes download all segments of each new show automatically. There's a link in the members section. Just click on it and let iTunes do the rest. We'll take a short intermission and listen to some great music, courtesy of my friend Jason Moore from Urban Torque, who just received the wonderful gift of twin baby boys. What a way to end the year and begin a new one. Jason, congratulations to you and your wife. This time, the feature song is called Book of Lies by Avatars. Enjoy.
This is Jason Moore from Urban Talk, and you're listening to Veritas. Veritas. 